0: Welcome to science story. Welcome to story. Welcome to Welcome All right, everybody, welcome back to Science Stories. I know it's been a while, but I've been away. I've been enjoying my time back home in Uruguay, actually. And this leads me directly into my guest. I have interest in this guest for two particular reasons. One is that he talks and he writes about climate change, which is something that I find really interesting. And the other reason is because he wrote an excellent piece at the New York Times magazine recently about uruguay and that's where i'm from i'm from uruguay so i'm here with noah gallagher shannon how are you doing Noah?
1: good thanks for having me on
0: of course so you wrote a great piece at the new york times recently basically it's a case study of how can people live sustainably and you use uruguay as your example
1: yeah so i i recently wrote a piece for the new york times magazine about uruguay um, in particular and more broadly Kind of uh, this question of how we're going to live sustainably in the future, and and what models might exist um, out there already for how we can do that, and how a lot of people can do that in a lot of different um, economic situations and a lot of different countries.
0: Yeah, and it, it's it's a really interesting piece, and I th- I think it it has a it's going to have a great impact on Uruguay, but we we can discuss that uh, later. First, mm-hmm. you describe yourself as an award-winning writer based in Colorado, mm-hmm. and you write for, for the New York Times Magazine, for Harper's, for Ox- Oxford American, and many others, currently working on a book about track and field, 1970s mm-hmm. West Texas.
1: Yeah, so I'm actually in uh, El Paso right now uh, doing some book reporting. The the book that I'm writing that I've been working on for the past, oh God, three or four years is about um, the emergence of East African distance running in the 60s and 70s. Um, And this kind of strange collision of factors that brought a bunch of these athletes to El Paso, of all places. Um, There was a coach there named Ted Banks, who got interested in the emergent success of East African distance runners in the late 60s. And, you know, couldn't get a lot of American kids to go to school in el paso um couldn't get the californian kids to come over couldn't get the east coast kids to come over so he thought well uh what if i offer offer some opportunities to some east african and eventually southern african runners um and in doing so he put together a team the that was one of the most uh, successful collegiate athletics programs in history um they won uh, many national titles set many world records won some Olympic medals um, until the team eventually kind of fell apart in the early 80s um, under some uh, you know kind of mysterious circumstances that had to do with the NCAA and some some forces pushing them out and also some some racism, racism and xenophobia on the part of uh, track and field and the NCAA and the kind of wider United States. Um, So I just, I got fascinated with that story years ago and have been chipping away at it.
0: Sounds amazing. I I heard in in another podcast that you were on that you even went to Tanzania Uh to try to understand where they came from, how they lived before coming to the US.
1: Yeah. So I spent the first three months of this year traveling through tanzania and then through south africa um both trips were were concentrated around um athletes that had come to utep in the early 1970s um so i was fortunate enough to spend yeah a lot of uh, pretty immersive time in, in both countries getting to know um, these athletes getting to know their families um traveling in at least one um, instance back to a runner's home village, um, which was on an island in Lake Victoria. And he was pretty dead set on me experiencing Tanzania the way that Tanzanians lived it and the way that he had lived it growing up in the 50s and 60s. So um, we took buses and cars uh, through the country, Um, you know, had some pretty... Uh, wild times, going through the Serengeti and seeing animals, seeing lions and hippos and elephants and everything else, um, sleeping on people's floors and in um, the outdoors and, um, you know, just meeting wonderful people along the way and getting a, a real sense of How uh, some of these young men had grown up, um, the value systems they had grown up in, you know, what took them halfway across the world in the 1970s to wind up in Texas, El Paso, of all places. Um, And it just gave me a great sense of, um, you know, uh, where some of the success for African distance running has come from um, and this kind of incredible lives that people have led. And, um, yeah, I'm just excited to. Share it with everybody soon. <laughs> I yeah, mean, it's I'm, not going as fast as I would hope, but it's. Um, I'm plugging away at it.
0: I would love to read it. And you yourself are a runner, right? You're you're a runner or an ultra runner?
1: <laughs> no, I, I no, I've definitely not done ultras. That stuff still strikes me as kind of um, insane, and and it's kind of fascinating how it's gotten so popular in the last few years. But um, yeah, I'm a runner. I ran in high school. I ran in college. Uh, at the University of Wisconsin Um, I run now you know every few days just to stay in shape but I haven't run competitively in more than a decade so uh, this book definitely scratches a few itches for me you know writing about college distance running writing about distance running on kind of the most competitive scale Um, but I'm also I think far enough removed from it that i can kind of look at it uh maybe a little more objectively than i did in, you know when i was 24 25 26 and i was just removed from that sort of crazy world of being a college athlete do you still skate yeah i skate a lot i actually skated uh yesterday in el paso and got a good hipper and i'm limping around today <laughs> nice. um
0: can i ask you a, a random question yeah please is gallagher your last name or your middle name
1: Gallagher is my middle name. Ah, your middle name. Um, it, okay. Yeah.
0: Because I don't know if you noticed, but in Uruguay, we we use both our father's and our mother's last names. Uh-huh. And since Gallagher, I, I heard it as a last name as well. I thought you, you, you picked that up or something.
1: No. Yeah. So Gallagher is my grandmother's maiden name um, and a name... Uh, that's shared throughout the family, and then a name that a lot of my friends in college and beyond have kind of known me by, so when I started writing, uh it just made sense to keep it in there nice, but yeah, so is that um is that a tradition just in Uruguay or that 's through a lot of Latin America is not it yeah
0: yeah it's yeah you're you're right yeah it's a it's a shared tradition, I would say yeah right Noah, can we dive in to your article a little bit more, yeah, please. So I think the idea of the article is it's really good. It, and I have to thank you in some way because when I say I'm from Uruguay, <laughs> people, the first question they ask is where in Africa is that country? <laughs> right? Or like they're clueless where, where what it is. But lately, because of your article, I've gotten mm-hmm. some, some people to say, whoa, I read a, a really good article about Uruguay in the New York Times.
1: Oh, that's so cool. So you've, um, you've
0: kind of put in Uruguay in the map back again.
1: Oh, well, you know, part of the reason that I picked Uruguay, and I picked Uruguay for a few different reasons, but one of them was just because it was a little bit of a, a blank spot on my mental map. You know, my editors and I were really interested in this idea of writing a piece about You know, if if there was a place living now the way that some of us needed to live in the future, if we were going to keep warming below um, a certain threshold and, you know, obviously no place is perfect and obviously no one place can be the model for how everyone in every different country or different community is going to live. Nevertheless, you know, I was trying to figure out where that place might be that could serve as a model for us to learn some things about our our pathway towards a smaller footprint um, and this idea of how to live more sustainably and also this idea of, you know, who bears the responsibility for reducing footprints, corporations and governments or individual people. So uh, there are a lot of different metrics and and ways for me to think about this. Um, And a few led me to Uruguay because... It was this kind of Goldilocks of a country in a sense where it had a pretty small footprint, but it still had a a very good standard of living. Um, And it had also gone through this incredible green revolution over the last 15 years, which struck me as just a really fascinating political event um, and also a, a fascinating event in the energy sector. And, you know, I think confronted a lot of the silly questions that you often get confronted with here in the United States about switching to uh, a different energy grid or how our lives might be impacted by renewable energy. Um, Granted that a country of whatever three and a half million is very different than a country of 350 million, um, but I think there are lessons that we can learn on that smaller scale. Um, But to kind of in a roundabout a roundabout way, return to your original question. Um, I didn't want to go and rehash some of the countries that people often think about when they think about climate action or um, the places that have been written about kind of ad nauseum. You know, your kind of sleek technocratic northern social democracies like Denmark and Sweden, um, or your biological havens like Bhutan or Costa Rica. So I was searching for something a little new. And and when I was looking at these different metrics and looking at um, the history of energy transitions and Uruguay came up, I thought, well, well that's fascinating. I know nothing about that. So I'm guessing <laughs> my readership's not going to know a lot about that. And that's always a fun place to arrive as as a writer if you feel like you get to I don't know introduce something to a readership and and I don't know play some small role in them finding something new or maybe thinking about a country in a different way because I know at least personally if I'm honest when when I thought about Uruguay before this I was kind of like so is that like Argentina's nephew or something (laughs) Or uh, is I, it just I, full of uh, cattle ranches and Montevideo?
0: I would say we're Argentina's little brother. <laughs> we have the, the relationship of little brother, older brother, that yep. they are proud of us and they wish us well. <laughs> and we are jealous of them and we think we're rivals of them a little bit, you know? Yeah. No, you, you start the article describing or, or painting the typical American life scenario. Mm-hmm. And there are a couple of facts that you mentioned that are quite interesting to me, specifically. Yeah. For example, that a fifth of the Americans contribute to the third of the household emissions. And this adds to 25 tons of carbon per year, per person. Uh-huh. Wh- which is a huge increment to what we need it to be if we wanted to fight global warming. And that and that number should be two tons, of carbon yeah. per year per person something that that cuts that got my attention there is it seems like a huge leap to jump from 25 tons to two tons of carbon per year
1: footprint carbon footprint is um a useful metric i think for thinking about kind of average consumption levels among people i mean i think there are some problems with it but i think it is a kind of nice shorthand for thinking about how each consumer might be contributing towards like the larger emissions of a country or a community in the case of the us yeah i think that the average person um or more typical because the average might be a bit skewed there Mm -hmm. i mean typical obviously is a kind of made-up term here but typical i think is around 25 tons but that's not necessarily the upper end the upper end could be as high as 60 70 80 90 tons that uh, an American consumer could be contributing um, so 25 represents um, you know the median basically
0: wow. so it is a huge drop that we need to get to right we, we need we need to drop from 25 to two tons Mm -hmm. if we wanted to to drop the temperature by two degrees by 2050 or something like that.
1: Yeah. And so 25 can look like an enormous number and it is an enormous number. But I think when you look at some of the models, some of these wedge models that different energy groups, um, climate groups have come up with, things like decarbonizing the grid, things like switching to EVs, things like changing um, household efficiency changing things like industry efficiency Um, those can take pretty big chunks out of a carbon footprint pretty quickly my interest i guess was this that it's not totally clear what that life is going to look like once we take those big cuts out and also uh, how do we get those those last kind of pesky cuts, where do those come? You know, do those come from uh, smaller lifestyle changes? Do those come from um, changes to personal behavior, like flying a little less, um, moving to a city center and trying to take more mass transportation, et cetera? You know, because part of my motivation for writing this story to begin with was was a kind of dissatisfaction with a certain kind of discourse largely within um, the American left and among climate activists, where there's this kind of disagreement about, you know, should all of these, should our focus go towards systemic action at the level of governments and changing um, corporate standards and holding corporate polluters accountable, or should our focus go towards changing our personal behavior, um, changing our carbon footprint, and it just struck me like it was odd that it was an, an either or. Um, I mean, surely I can vote for politicians um, who are more forward-thinking on green energy at the same time that I can choose to fly a little less. Um, because I think it's important for us as Americans and as uh, global citizens um, to acknowledge our own role in climate change which is that like you know these corporations didn't burn all of this gas in a vacuum you know they burned it to support the lifestyle that we want and that we pay for um and so
0: yes the rubber's got to
1: meet the road somewhere
0: yeah sorry sorry to interrupt you but there's like a special a kind of a call to take responsibility when you say Mm -hmm. that the majority of the emissions come from just a hundred or so corporations but we pay them to or, oh, we burn it ourselves, because the way we live depends on these corporations like and and you mentioned them like Walmart and all these corporations are burning all this carbon, but this is because yeah. this is because we use them basically,
1: yeah, I think our lifestyles are deeply entangled with carbon emissions, and so to expect that we can just sit back and kind of vote for. Uh, certain supply side or certain demand side interventions is I think, uh, kind of wishful thinking. I, I do think that it getting to, uh, a place of two carbons, two, two tons of carbon per person is going to require, uh, some personal change in behavior. I, I just find it very hard to believe that, uh, A revolution that some call, you know, the greatest in human history since fire uh, isn't going to involve a lot of dramatic change undertaken to one's own behavior. Um, That just seems kind of insane to me. And, you know, I thought I was interested in these questions. I didn't necessarily have a particular kind of argument that I wanted to make. Uh, about where we should focus our time or which personal behaviors matter more than others. Um, Because I think that that's, you know, it's not necessarily my job, Um, number one. And number two, uh, I was just interested in kind of widening out the discussion a little bit towards what are some other pathways that are available for us to take in the future Um, you know are there some pathways that are a mix between supply and demand side interventions are there some some paths that are evident in the global south or some some of these places that we don't necessarily sometimes look toward for um inspirational models of development but um, i thought it was worth doing um at least in a single piece
0: yeah, and I like that you, you use the word imagine as mm-hmm. the need for creativity of thinking new ways of living, right? It's not just waiting for a solution to... So, to be honest, I, mm-hmm. I've said for a, lot of a long time that I had more hope in a scientist coming up with a solution for our climate problem than mm-hmm. people changing their behavior in order to, to take responsibility and do that. But in, y- in your article... Basically, what you what you seek to look out for is a different way of living that doesn't mean a huge change in the way of living. That it wouldn't be that bad, right? Like you, All right? You, you went out and looked. Okay, these guys live quite sustainably, and it's it's not bad. Like they they don't have a bad quality of life.
1: I think one of the most surprising things to me when I when I went to Uruguay and Talk to politicians and energy experts, and then also just tried to talk to people at every cross-section of the economy and society, you know, p- folks living in slums and people that are middle class or people that are richer. Um, when I would ask about how the energy revolution in Uruguay had changed their lives, they were often like, well, it hasn't. Nothing. <laughs> you yeah. know, I, I mean, the the energy uh, that comes out of my outlet just is derived from a different source. Um, and actually, the fact that it hadn't changed lives as much uh, represented a kind of political problem on, certain, on a certain level, because certain Uruguayan leaders were trying to get a movement going. And if people weren't necessarily seeing a drop in their uh, electricity bills, you know, what was their further motivation to take other steps or to undertake other behavioral changes? Um, so I think that was a really surprising result, mostly because I think in the U.S. you often hear about how changing to a different grid is going to represent such a dramatic shift in American life, and everyone in Uruguay was sort of like, "Well, what energy revolution? Like there hasn't really been a revolution, not in the Latin American sense. Like we just got our electricity from different place." Um, There wasn't crowds in the streets. There wasn't um, marches to try to change things. In fact, like they ended up changing their electricity source, not necessarily because uh, it was more ecologically friendly uh, or friendly to climate change, but because of reasons for national sovereignty. Uh, Uruguay had been put in this position where because their economy was so small and because they didn't have domestic oil reserves, their economy got yanked around by whatever oil commodity prices were doing. Um, so I think the leaders got together and decided, like, what's the best move for our sovereignty moving forward? And that was renewables. Initially, some people thought that it was nuclear. Um, but I think once Ramon Mendez became energy director in 2008 um, and he became energy director in part because he had experience in nuclear power, or at least in um, atomic physics. But the more he looked at it, the more that he felt like renewables were the way to go, because nuclear still produces waste, um, and renewables don't for the most part. And they were able to get the investment going up and going pretty quickly, um, which was all fairly shocking for me as I was reporting this story.
0: Noah, you're diving into Uruguay, and we need to do a little break before we dive completely into the Uruguayan subject. Is that okay?
1: Okay, great. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So now we're listening to Victim by The War on Drugs. And before the break, we were listening to Pictures of You by Drug Dealer and Kate Bollinger. I always ask my, my guests, why why did you pick those songs?
1: Um, I had picked those songs. Uh, the Drug Dealer song uh, with Kate Bollinger, I've been playing a lot lately. I just really like the kind of smooth 70s vibe that it has to it. And Bollinger's voice is really beautiful. Yeah. Um, War on Drugs, man, I've been driving, spending a lot of time in the car over the last two or three weeks, uh, driving from Colorado to New Mexico, visiting people in New Mexico, then driving on to West Texas. And the War on Drugs is just a great road trip band, guitar driven band, great uh, windows down music. And so I've been playing that a lot lately as well. Is
0: it a coincidence that both of them have drugs in there?
1: (laughs) I was thinking about that when you said it. Uh, You know, maybe.
0: So before the break, we were talking a little bit about about the changes that Uruguay undertook in order to go green, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's better if you make a small summary of of what were those government-driven changes. Could you please?
1: Yeah, so as I was talking about before the break, Uruguay um, in the early 2000s, Undertook a dramatic transition from largely oil based energy to renewables, a lot of wind, a lot of solar, a lot of biomass. And that transition was undertaken not necessarily for climate change reasons, but uh, when you talk to politicians there, mostly for reasons of national sovereignty. The economy was yoked to commodity prices, oil commodity prices abroad and so little Uruguay was greatly affected by changes in oil prices and wars that they had nothing to do with. And so there were rolling blackouts in the country and I think pretty high uh, energy prices and the government just got together and decided to do something about it. and. What I found particularly fascinating, and also inspiring and absurd on some level as an American, was that when this political decision was made in the 2000s, the government formed a plan for a 30-year transition. And uh, when the presidents who were in office at this time—this was when the Broad Front was in office—so the presidents were. It's Vasquez funny It's funny you,
0: you call it the broad front.
1: Frente Amplio.
0: Yeah. Um, so it would be the left party, I guess.
1: When they were in power under Presidents Vasquez and Mujica, they decided that they needed a coalition with the other parties in the government. And when I asked President Mujica, former President Mujica, why this was, you know, this would be like Biden having a majority in the Senate and in Congress still deciding that he wanted the Republicans approval over a energy plan. Um, and you know, particularly at this moment of, of belligerent, like belligerent politics on the national and local level in the US, like uh, the idea of this just seemed crazy to me as an American. But the way Mujica put it to me was governments pass and people remain. and if we're going to have a 30 year energy revolution, there's a good chance that the left party will lose in four years or eight years. And we need to ensure that that revolution is going to continue. So we need to get the the right on board with what we're doing. And
0: and then it was a matter of getting the money to yeah, finance this and I this think the next,
1: the next challenge for the government led by Ramon Mendez, who was the national director of energy at the time, was how to get investment for such a large transition. And when he went out and talked to a lot of the world energy experts at places like the World Bank um, or others, they all told him that uh, Uruguay basically just didn't have the money or the tax base to subsidize such a large scale transition Um, so he went about it in a slightly different way where they had a mix of private and public ownership and most of the deals were done through what they call power purchase agreements where basically the state-run utility in Uruguay says hey private power producer you're not going to be able to control prices but we will buy every kilowatt hour you produce in your windmill farms for the next 20 years or however long the contract was and you know that's really appealing to a private power company because they're like great we know exactly what (laughs) our revenue is going to be for the next however many years Um,
0: but it's a little bit risky for the government right
1: It's a little bit risky for the government um, for a few reasons. One of them is that, you know, it works perfectly if growth is going up and up and up because wind power and other renewables don't work exactly on a sort of supply and demand uh, mechanism, right? Normal supply and demand mechanism. You want to cook dinner, so you turn on your stove And a power plant someplace far away fires a little more oil. It doesn't exactly work like that. But um, for the purpose of uh, an imaginary example, Mm -hmm. but wind doesn't blow on command, right? The sun doesn't shine on command. So uh, those systems have to work a little bit more like reservoir systems. You have to kind of over anticipate demand with supply. So that works really well if the if the economy is continuing to grow and grow and grow, and you can kind of grow to match it. What's harder is when the economy starts to slow, or if even the economy starts to decline, because then you have more power, more supply than you have demand. A lot of this can be worked out through the balance in the different kinds of power sources, right? You have wind during the night when it's more windy. You have sun during the day when it's more sunny, etc. But still, there are situations where you might have excess power, and in Uruguay, at least according to the government, the current government, uh, there are situations where they wind up overpaying for energy they don't use. Now. I think opponents of that would say, like, look, in the net savings that Uruguay has had, I mean, I think that they've saved a half a billion dollars a year on their energy. It kind of comes out in the wash and it's fine. You know, one of the interesting, one of the most interesting parts about the energy transition to me, again, as an American thinking about our current political system, is that when I sat down with uh, members of the current government which is a more right-leaning government, mm-hmm. I expected them to immediately kind of...
0: Push against Criticize. It criticize push yeah. against
1: the transition, criticize it. But in fact, it was the opposite. It was them, you know, almost praising it and trying to take credit for parts of it that they had worked on and trying to further it, to try to improve it for the next generation. So I think, you know, to see that kind of mutual agreement in a party Uh, across parties on something as large as an energy transition. It's just brain scrambling for an American.
0: I like a phrase that you use that it's that this transition was not seen as a crisis, but just as a problem that needed a solution. And therefore that kind of united everyone behind this cause. And it was like, yeah, we need to cooperate in order to get this. And
1: yeah, I mean, I, I think the way that Ramon Mendez go back to him because he played such a large role in this. And I think he's such a fascinating visionary. He didn't want to solve a short-term energy crisis when he came into office. You know, you solve a short-term energy crisis by, I don't know, thinking creatively about how to buy more oil or how to diversify uh, your energy portfolio or something. And he thought like, "Ah, that's just solving this short-term problem when we're not figuring out the underlying causes of the disease that is plaguing our culture right now and so he took the time and I think had the political support across both parties to try to solve that long-term disease and uh, I mean it's it's an incredible credit to everyone involved that they did it and they did it so quickly
0: when you mentioned about demand meeting supply can you tell the people about the smart plan that the government came up with in order to encourage that?
1: Yeah, so the smart plan, um, in my recollection, is, uh, or the smart tariff, or whatever the exact translation for it is, is basically a plan whereby the government is trying to reduce the strain on the grid during peak hours. You know, most people are going to use the most amount of electricity in the time between work hours, you know, in the morning when you're making breakfast and getting kids out of the house and in the evening when everyone's back at the house and they're watching TV and they're cooking dinner. So I think what the smart plan did was it reduced the tariff during certain hours and it had you select particular hours during which you would have a reduced tariff. So, you know, I don't know if you chose between 11 and midnight, you might get a reduced rate for those hours. And then that might be the time during which you decide to do your high energy use chores, like your uh, washing clothes or washing dishes or taking hot showers. So the idea is to kind of like flatten out those, those big peaks in usage of electricity, so that um, the grid can be a little better stabilized. And hopefully, then you can bring more people onto it, bring more industries onto it.
0: So those are the measurements that the government took in order to carry out this transition. But you were also, and you were, I think, mostly interested in how people behaved, and how the way of living also worked well with this transition and, and with this sustainability. What did you find out?
1: Uh, Well, I mean, you can probably tell uh, tell the listeners as much as I can, but yeah, I thought that there was an interesting kind of relationship between this energy transition and then also the way of Uruguayan life, which struck me as um, pretty humble, pretty content, um, pretty kind of interested in collective action in a way that American culture is sometimes the opposite. Um, and so that allowed the energy revolution to have some pretty recip- like receptive participants. Um, Cause people were willing to say like, yeah, it's cool. I can wait a couple more hours to take my shower during this smart tariff time, or yeah, I can run my, dishwasher at night or run my my uh, dryer at night. That's not a big deal. I mean, those things, it struck me at times that they would be the kinds of things that Americans might complain about. Um, and most Uruguayans, when I talked to them, were like, why would that be a big deal? And maybe that's because there's a bit more a sense of collective action among them. I mean, I, I think one thing I heard some people say was that Uruguay's small size lends itself towards a lot of collective thinking. I mean, it's not a big country, so um, there's this feeling of uh, being together in this political project. I also think that you know Uruguay's fairly recent uh, emergence from a dictatorship and has played some role in, in people be seeming to be very focused on how to improve the future, for the country rather than merely how to improve their own lives but you know those are kind of an outsider's interpretations of what's going on i mean i would be curious to hear from you about why you feel like mm, things have gone so smoothly in uruguay
0: yeah i actually i have a question for you that shows a little bit how i think and it's okay do you think it's this sense of collectiveness that drives this like um general well-being or it's just i'm gonna use the electricity at night because it's cheaper and it's, yeah
1: i mean I think, it- I think i i heard both things from people that it's pure economic incentive and there there was a real frugality to a lot of uh uruguayan families both because i don't know it, maybe it's something in the national character that's lent itself to that but also because things there are so expensive yeah um I heard that from a lot of people. It's like, hey, we get paid less and things are more expensive because Uruguay doesn't produce a lot of things. So almost everything has to get imported and almost everything that's imported comes with these huge tariffs and taxes. So everyone's just learned to go without um, in the way that Americans, because we have all these ready-made widgets at our hands at any point to get ordered by amazon for cheap to arrive quickly we've just gotten used to consuming things where there it seemed like there was a bit more of a frugal culture of thrifting going without uh grouping errands together uh for a certain time in the week because gas could get up towards six seven eight dollars a gallon you know those economic incentives have just kind of bled into the culture
0: i wonder for example if you you went into someone's home that he invited you to a home and you ended up talking talking about the old sofa that he had and he never saw a reason to change it right mm-hmm. but i wonder if changing the sofa was as cheap as it as it is here or as common as I'm it's sure here it's if, if they would do it so as a uruguayan reading your article hmm To me, it was interesting the the kind of romantic view that you had about this situation. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Whereas to me, it was, I mean, why would you change a sofa for nothing? It it just doesn't make any sense.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, like that itself is interesting to me because I, I was asking many people, well, wouldn't you just buy a new car if you could afford it? Or if you could afford it, wouldn't you just replace the sofa? And oftentimes people's response was, well, no. Why would I? Their response. Their response was the same as yours. Whereas, you know, I think if I asked a lot of my friends or a lot of people in my community, like uh, they would probably be more quick to replace an old couch if they had the money. So, um, what what would you so, say
0: is the American dream? Sorry, sorry to cut you. But what would you say is the American dream?
1: Oh, I, don't, I mean, I wouldn't know. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I, it depends on on. Uh, What someone's uh, projection of that is, Uh, but I think it has to do with um, a lot of freedom from economic constraints, you know, the ability to buy a house that fits your family comfortably, the ability to uh, work and earn a good wage. Um, the ability to not have the government tax you too terribly, uh, the freedom to on and on and on. I mean, it, it it depends on some level what your romantic view of the American project is. Um, but I think for a lot of people, it comes down to being able to uh, afford certain kinds of comforts and to uh, be able to save their money and provide a good life for their children and buy a bigger house when they want one and to buy a bigger car when they want one and to see that life grow and grow and grow. I mean, that's certainly a, a model of the American dream that I was thinking about and critiquing as I was writing this model of like, you know, you buy a starter house and then when you outgrow that house, you buy a little bit of a larger one and then you grow to fit that house. And once you fit it, then you buy a larger one. And I think that's so ingrained in our culture that sometimes when you go to other cultures and they say like, no, this is a multi-generational home. Uh, we have three generations of people living in it and two generations before that lived in it. Um, it can be a little surprising.
0: Yeah, so I think that the Uruguayan dream life or the Uruguayan dream, it's to save enough money to buy a small house away from the city and just mm-hmm. go there in the weekends and chill basically do nothing just <laughs> sit there and enjoy a barbecue with friends and drink mate and chat yeah you know so it's in, it's ingrained in our culture i guess it some people could see it as lack of ambition <laughs> but it's it's just the simple life that i I don't, I don't know i i feel like you don't need much
1: yeah yeah you know i'm i'm wary of kind of romanticizing other cultures or other lifestyles, particularly when you only parachute in and and enjoy them for a couple of days or a couple of weeks. But I was really struck when I was in Uruguay by how content people were with that vision of their future. And I mean, particularly at a time in America where there seems to be a real mental health crisis particularly among like a younger generation where they feel very disconnected and they feel very anxious and uh, you know i saw a uruguayan way of life which was you know people standing around on street corners and chatting and drinking mate as you were saying and, and kind of just enjoying the simplicity of that life as sort of inspiring and at times i feel like american life particularly American suburban life is so isolated uh, and so kind of fragmented that when you go to a culture where uh, you see real community, you see like the real social fabric of the place on the street. um, Yeah, I I just love being there. And it seems like some kind of solution to a lot of the anxiety and malaise that I think a lot of Americans are feeling.
0: It's very really nice to Cuz you know when you
1: say like the dream is just to go to the countryside and kick it with your friends it's like yeah that sounds great um, <laughs> but I'm not sure that that's a lot of Americans ambition.
0: Yeah, I mean it's just different a uh, difference in culture that it's interesting to analyze if Uruguay is a good example or not for America, right? To to it's a good model to copy or not. If it's viable mm-hmm. even, right?
1: Yeah, I don't know. And and that wasn't necessarily the project of my piece to try to like map uruguay onto the us or show exactly how we can change to be like them but just to go somewhere try to immerse myself in the culture learn something about its history narrate it in such a way that the reader um, can experience it with some granular detail and like you know take from it what you want
0: now let's do another short break and then And then when we come back, I want to share with you a, an interesting study that I read preparing for this interview about how, how an alternative way to get people to change and be a little bit more environmentally friendly, and which is it's a really nice experiment. And then I want you to tell me about your stories in Uruguay. Okay, I'm really, okay, curi- cool. I'm really curious about that.
1: Awesome. science stories, science stories. Science stories, yes. science, science stories, yes. science
0: stories. If you won't want what you want, then you want it. <laughs> let the smokers shine there what what are we listening to
1: uh i think it's push a t of yeah, the latest album from this year
0: and before the break we were listening to want want my by maggie rogers Is there any particular reason you picked these songs
1: uh the push t i picked because it was an album that i skated to a lot this year i've been trying to take uh daily or every other day like skate breaks usually around lunch sometimes listening to music and that was an album i played a lot uh the Mm -hmm. other the maggie rogers has to be um a shout out to my wife katie who i've for years maybe not for years but for a while was trying to get me to listen to maggie rogers and i didn't and then that song came on recently and i was like wow this is really good this is just like a great pop song um and she's like see i told you (laughs) sometimes it just takes an extra push you know yeah
0: i have two questions one one question actually came from the audience and Mm -hmm. they say that so Uruguay may be such a great example of sustainability because it's it's such a less dense population. It's such a the number of people that live there is so small that it's easier for them to live sustainably in compared to other places that are more populated or densely populated. Do you think that's that could be a a case?
1: Well, I mean, it's usually the opposite when you look at density and carbon footprints. It's usually the people who live in the densest cities where they're using mass transportation and their square footage is smallest that have the smallest carbon footprints. In part, that's why Uruguay has such a small uh, per capita carbon footprint is because you know something like half of the people live in The same fairly dense urban area so i mean you could just extrapolate that out and say if half of your population lived that way maybe you could maintain the same kind of per capita uh, carbon footprint on the same level i don't know though i mean it, it sure seems like the the bigger you grow or at least um the more that places push a certain kind of developmental model that we talked about earlier, which is as you get more money, you get a bigger house, you get more cars, you buy another air conditioning, et cetera. I mean, I think that's the developmental model that leads to larger and larger consumption. Um, In part, I think Uruguay seems to have reached a certain level of development in a fairly dense urban space where um, a lot of people uh, don't necessarily use heating and cooling. A lot of people uh, walk a fair amount rather than driving extensively. And that's um, led to their per capita carbon footprint staying fairly small. I mean, Uruguay is not, you know, a perfect model when it comes to that, because you know, from what I heard from people, there's not a ton of mass transportation use. Car use is on the rise there. Um, I also heard from some people that felt like the American and/or kind of Western European model of development and consumption is catching on there a little bit more, where people want the status symbol of the next big car, or they want the big house in. Uh, the countryside, or they want the big house in Punta de Este, or whatever it is. So, yeah, Uruguay is not a a perfect example of a sustainable way of life, um, and I think there are any way, any number of ways to nitpick it. Um, but I thought that it was an interesting. Example, And I thought it was um, an illustrative example of a certain kind of way forward that mixed supply and demand side interventions and also seemed to rely on some behavioral changes among people and some humility among people to cap their lifestyle at a certain size and consumption, which is, I don't think, a, a thing that most Americans think about Um Maybe they do in places like New York City, where there are economic constraints against people growing indefinitely. You know, it, apartments get really, really expensive very quickly, um, and I think the same is probably true in a lot of Western European cities, and probably in Montevideo that you can't keep living downtown if you want a bigger and bigger and bigger flat.
0: Yeah, definitely for sure. So, no, as I as I read this article. I also agree with you that it doesn't necessarily have to be either or, and and the choices are between waiting for the government to take action and me myself taking action, right? It -hmm. has to be a combination of both. And unfortunately, I think it's easier in some situations to wait for the government to take action than to hope that people change their behavior as a collective. So I started looking in academia if there had been any experiments or any solutions to this problem, because this is basically a, p- a problem. We need people to behave more sustainably. They don't do it. It's a problem that could be solved like many other scientific problems, right? Sure. And there's a really interesting experiment that they... So it's a really smart experimental design because they, at random hotels of different quality of the hotel, of different status of the hotel... They installed a digital device at the shower in which while you are showering, while you're showering, it shows you a small like a, a picture of a polar bear. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it shows you how much you are consuming of electricity.
1: Okay. Is is it like melting away the iceberg under the polar bear as you take a longer shower I, or something? That's I, horrifying.
0: Yeah, it is indeed melting. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What I think is really smart about this design is, first of all, you don't opt in to this study. It's kind of, you you, don't, you didn't ask to participate in the study and this right. this reduces some biases of people who choose to participate in this kind of studies, right? Sure. And the second thing that is brilliant is that it's a hotel where the bill is already paid. So it doesn't matter whether you take a long or a short shower, right? So you, you don't have mm-hmm. an a economic incentive to reduce your time in shower or, or to reduce your, your electricity usage. Okay. And they did find a reduced amount of energy in the cases when they used this device in comparison when they, when they didn't. So yeah. it's interesting that it, it's not only using money as, a, as an incentive to produce change because the fastest way to think about it is just tax more hard current emitting products mm-hmm. but in this case you don't even need to to tax more anybody and, and just a little bit of incentive and they they can change their behavior by this
1: yeah i think that's really interesting I, I mean it shows how people might just be intuitively ready to use less you know if they're guilted into it i guess with the picture of a polar bear who's mm-hmm. about to die i mean I, I think some people would say well your water bill functions in the same way, right? If it's more expensive, you're going to use less, but there's a way in which that visual reminder while you're in the shower just keeps you probably mindful of it. Whereas, you know, your water bill comes once a month. So on one particular day, uh, when you decide to take a bath and uh, wash the dishes and do something else, you may just forget about it. I also, you know, I think a lot of our resources, at least in the U.S., aren't priced appropriately. I mean, I'm always shocked when I go to places like Arizona, where I have a lot of family, and how cheap their water bills are, how cheap they are, despite the fact that every day in the news, you read about how they're in the midst of this world historic drought and also in the midst of this real crisis about how to manage the Colorado River and about groundwater in the state. So sometimes it, it comes down to, you know, incentivizing people in the right way and making those incentives visual, I guess, as you're saying. I mean, I'd be interested to see, I guess, a similar thing installed in my <laughs> house and like what it might provoke in me. I, I don't know. Yeah, the the, the uh, thing they
0: discuss is if this would work long term, because this is a one-time thing that you go to a hotel and you see it and you say, "Oh, okay, mm. maybe I should do something." But if you see it every day, maybe you get used to it and, and you yeah, stop caring. Yeah, you know,
1: it's like you see so many polar bears die; you just probably get over it on yeah. some level. You know, it's the same way that we all can be kind of exhausted by climate change news and the latest push. Notification about the latest model showing how bad things are going to become. People just, on some level, get numb to it because we have to carry on and live our lives. On at some point, but yeah, you wonder if little visual reminders like that, how much they could cut into uh, gas usage or electricity usage or water usage. I wonder. That's really interesting. I mean, yeah. one thing I saw in. Uruguay that I think goes along with this is that you know the government goes through this sweeping transition and then all of a sudden Uruguay starts getting attention from global outlets uh, naming it as you know one of the most sustainable places on earth and they start you know getting invited to energy summits and other places and just getting a lot of positive attention and then I think Uruguayans took a lot of pride in that and Uruguayans who maybe previously didn't think about themselves as environmentalists. And I met a lot of Uruguayans who were like, I never thought of myself as an environmentalist. I mean, Ramon Mendez, who's now responsible for one of the fastest and wide scale uh, transitions to renewable energy, was like, I didn't think about myself as an environmentalist before (laughs) I undertook this. Um, But going through that political transition, seeing their world around them changed visually, I think inspired some of them to be like, oh, well, maybe I should start recycling. You know, now that Uruguay is this kind of um, world leader in this certain sector, maybe I should start pulling my own weight. Maybe I can start doing this, and maybe the city can have a better recycling program, or maybe I can use a little less power on my own. Um, and I think. So often in the romantic American political imagination, we think that change is going to come by people taking action and then the policy following suit. But this was the opposite, right? It was a policy that got pushed through and then the people were inspired by it and got on board. Um, So I thought that was one other very interesting and inspirational points of Uruguay was that like you know, the future may not look exactly like we expect and it may not follow exactly the same course as we expect.
0: So now that you went back to Uruguay, I want to know how was your experience down there? First of all, you told me that you don't speak Spanish.
1: No, I don't speak Spanish. I mean, How do you get around? No, I don't speak Spanish. I got around because I had a great fixer named Guillermo Garat, who is a local... AP reporter in Uruguay, in Montevideo. I got in contact with him mostly because I wanted someone who had covered the en- energy revolution firsthand and could make some connections for me quickly on the ground. The photographer I was working with, Alessandro Cinque, who's Italian but lives in Lima and so speaks Spanish fluently, was also helpful. And then You know, for the most part, a lot of the figures that I was speaking to, political figures like Mendez, speak English. So they felt pretty comfortable speaking to me.
0: How was the experience of meeting Mujica? Regardless of your political views, I think everybody recognizes that he's a, a super amazing character and human being because of his life history and, I don't know, because of what he preaches now.
1: Yeah, a really fascinating character and one of one of the characters that drew me towards the Uruguayan story when I was thinking about countries to cover for this story.
0: Did you meet First, him on his farm?
1: I did not meet him in person. We tried to meet in person while I was in the country and I believe he was away. So we ended up speaking over Zoom, but he was on his farm and he was very generous with his time. Uh, gave us something like two hours we spoke. You know, it's always somewhat intimidating to talk to um, a world political figure like that, but he's very humble, very welcoming, answered our questions, and then also just kind of wanted to chat and make jokes. You know, people who don't necessarily know his his profile, he was a guerrilla in the 1960s and 70s and was responsible for, I think, one or more uh, bank robberies in which the uh, Tupamaros, the group that he was affiliated with, robbed banks in order to disperse money back to the poor. This is during Uruguay's military dictatorship. Um, Eventually he was caught, captured, shot, and spent I think something like 13, 14, 15 years in prison. I think escaping twice while he was in prison. So I mean, he's already lived this incredible life And then after that, he manages to get into politics, become minister of agriculture because he comes from a um, agricultural background and then becomes president of a country. I mean, the trajectory of that is just incredible in its own. So it was fun to write about and report. But then to speak to him and to have a president of a former country, you know, quote, Seneca to you and quote other poets and talk about how when he was in prison, he took care of these frogs by bathing them in water and how it helped to teach him the meaning of life. I mean, it just kind of blows your hair back, I guess. It was a lot of fun to meet him. I don't often get all that excited, but I was certainly excited to sit down and talk to him since he has such a particular vision of the world and has stuck to it i mean i think that's what so many people regardless of whether they agree with him politically respect about him is that he's someone who walks the walk right he talks about living simply he talks about how the consumptive models of development lead not only to the destruction of the ecosystem but to the destruction of human happiness and so he does what he can to resist them and he you know, foregoes living in the presidential palace and stays on his farm. He donates a bunch of his uh, salary to uh, the homeless in Uruguay. So he's someone that's kind of maintained his views, you know, even though he was sitting in the highest office in Uruguay.
0: No, I I heard in another podcast of yours that you're a vegetarian, but if you're in a special occasion. <laughs> and and you actually said, for example, in Uruguay during a asado, that is a typical yeah. barbecue, you would try a little bit of mint. Did that happen? Yeah, yeah.
1: I try, yeah, I've been a vegetarian for a very long time, but I try not to be dogmatic about it in situations where I might be missing out on a certain kind of cultural experience, and/or a situation where I'm a guest in someone's home, and they may not have a lot of money, or they may be trying to um, welcome me into their home and serve me dinner. I'm not gonna like say, "Oh no, no, no! I don't, I don't eat meat in those occasions." And uh, Uruguay struck me as one of those places where, I mean, when you're there, you gotta eat some steak. I mean, it's what the country is famous for. So yeah, we, I had a, a couple of like roadside asados with people in Uruguay that were wild. I mean, the cuts of beef, first of all, are just enormous. <laughs> I mean, it's that way in Argentina too, where you order yeah. a steak and it's like as big as your chest.
0: Yeah, it is like that, yeah. Yeah, well, I wanted to to see what you had to say about that being a, a vegetarian and I don't know how much time you spend in Uruguay, but living a couple of weeks, mm-hmm. I think it's almost impossible not to try some meat.
1: Yeah, and I wanted to. I mean, that was something I told Guillermo when we were driving around the countryside. Was that I wanted to like stop in a town and get a traditional asado, like because um, I think as much as possible, when you're in a country for only a short time in a very concentrated way, like I just want to see how people are living. I want to try on the different things that they're doing. I want to try to immerse myself as much as possible. So yeah, I was definitely like, yeah, we got to do a. Roadside Asado and like get all the different cuts of meat and, you know, get stuff full and barely be able to drive the car afterwards (laughs) because they just kept coming out with like cut after cut after cut. I mean, after it started getting a little absurd after a while. I mean, I think they were also trying to like they saw that the, you know, the American and the Italian were in town or something. And so they just wanted to like bring out the next thing, bring out the next thing. So it was steaks and it was blood sausage and it was all this all these different things
0: did you notice the difference in pronunciation in our spanish and with the mexican spanish
1: um certain parts of it maybe you know i probably don't have a good enough ear to tell a lot of the difference um so for
0: example how would you say gentleman in spanish do you know
1: no or, like what word are you or, gonna or use? this one
0: you might know how do you say rain in spanish
1: I don't, I don't know.
0: So, lluvia, uh, right? Okay. Yubia. In Uruguay, we would say shuvia. Okay. Did you notice that at all, that difference? No, no? I,
1: I probably don't have a good enough ear to hear that stuff. Um, I was talking with someone yesterday and comparing how in a place like Córdoba, for instance, in a town, Villa Carlos Paz, they're saying Visha, which in, in Mexican Spanish might be Vía. Exactly. Right? And how That's there's exactly. like a little bit more of a lisping turn to the Spanish. Uh, someone was also telling me that a lot of the Spanish in like the campancinos is that the right word mm-hmm. for like the farms, like yeah. in farm country, there's a very similar kind of Spanish, whether in Argentina in the Pampas or in um, Uruguay in the Pampas.
0: Noah, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed talking with you. Did you have a good yeah. time? Yeah,
1: Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, this is very fun. It's It's been a really fun part of writing this story about Uruguay that uh, both Uruguayans, a lot of expats, a lot of people around the world have reached out and want to talk about it because uh, I think people want to have some sense of an imaginative way forward. So that's been a really fun part. So I appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much.
0: Can I ask you one last favor before we, we shut down? Yeah, of course. Can you say Vamo uruguay? Eh? Like people in Uruguay say?
1: Vamo Uruguay? Eh?
0: It's like Bamo, like let's go. Vamo Uruguay eh?
1: Uruguay?
0: Pretend that you're in the stadium.
1: Vamo Uruguay! Eh?
0: <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you <laughs> so All right.
1: much. Cool. Thanks, man. Wow. Wow.